Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Galatians. It's actually us kind of eavesdropping in. Somebody hijacked some of Paul's mail <laughs> and then put it in the book. We turned it into scripture. It says, you're no longer a slave, but a child of God. And if you are God's child, then you are also an heir through God. You'll notice that that's the KBV, the Kenny Bishop version. <laughs> I promise I did not uh, blaspheme Paul's words uh, at all. You can read your own version if you want and find out. <laughs> In 1890, the state of Louisiana passed the Separate Car Act. The law required all passenger railways at that time to have separate train accommodations for black and white people. Even though federal law said that the cars had to have equal accommodations, the state law was clearly intended to keep white people from having to interact and share space with black people. Black passengers who sat in spaces designated for whites only were liable to be fined or even sent to prison if they refused to comply. On February 24, 1892, Daniel Dadenay was a train station in New Orleans. Decades before civil rights leader and U.S. Congressman John Lewis would challenge us with the phrase, Mr. Dadenay was ready to get into some good trouble and some necessary trouble for the cause of fair treatment and justice. Daniel Dadenay was a light-skinned man of mixed race, and that meant that he was forbidden to sit in the train's whites-only compartment. In the eyes of the law, even being one-eighth black meant that Daniel was not white, and that meant that he could not sit in a seat reserved for a white person, and he knew it. Daniel was a volunteer for a local civil rights group that was trying to set up a test case to challenge the constitutionality of Louisiana's Separate Car Act. The plan was for Daniel to be arrested and if tried and found guilty to take the case all the way to the Louisiana Supreme Court. And just like the plan was counting on, when the train's conductor demanded that Daniel move from his seat and he refused, he was arrested, but savvy attorneys for the state of Louisiana who knew what was happening, who knew what they were up to, were able to find a loophole that would clear Daniel's charges and prevent the case from moving through the courts. That meant the constitutionality of the law would not be challenged. Then, a few months later, on June 7th of that same year, another light-skinned man of mixed descent, another volunteer for the Citizens Committee, the same local civil rights organization that Daniel Dadenay had volunteered for, bought a first-class ticket and made his way onto the part of the train reserved for whites only. What made this attempt to challenge the discriminatory state law different from the last attempt was the train that was used. Daniel Dadenay's case was able to avoid being challenged in the state courts because the train he boarded 
was an interstate train that traveled to other states. This time would be different. Homer Plessy would be sure to break the law on an intrastate train that traveled only within the borders of Louisiana. That would put his offense under the jurisdiction of state laws. And sure enough, the plan worked. Homer was arrested for violating the Separate Car Act and he was taken into custody. He's put on trial and he's found guilty. His legal team appeals his case and it's sent to the Louisiana Supreme Court where it's hoped the court will overturn the lower court's decision and declare the Separate Car Act unconstitutional, finally. But the court does not overturn Homer's conviction, so the state law stands. That was not the plan. Homer's case and the rights of every person of color in the state of Louisiana and effectively the entire nation will now be in the hands of the eight justices who sit on the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. One of those men, one of those justices would be Associate Justice John Marshall Harlan. John Marshall Harlan was born and raised just a few miles from here, down in Danville, Kentucky. He came from a prominent slave-holding family there, and he enjoyed a pretty quick rise in Kentucky politics. And even though he didn't support the Emancipation Proclamation, he did support the Union during the Civil War. In 1863, he ran for Kentucky Attorney General and won. And a few years later, he was appointed by the, to the U.S. Supreme Court by President Rutherford B. Hayes. He served on the high court for over 30 years. And because he often disagreed with the court's majority, he became known as the Great Dissenter. Sometimes what you need in a place like that, places that tend to become vacuums, occupied with people just trying to protect their own power and their own interests. Sometimes what you need in a place like that is a great dissenter. Tomorrow is June 19th. It's a special day in our nation's history, and it's a day that I'm ashamed to say I didn't know much about until just a few years ago. As a kid in school back in the day, I don't ever remember hearing anything at all about Juneteenth. I also, in all my years of primary and secondary education, never had a teacher who was a person of color. For generations, Juneteenth has been recognized and celebrated by black Americans as a great day of independence. And the truth is, it's probably a much, much more honest independence day than July 4th. Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave and renowned black abolitionist, called out the hypocrisy of our nation and its early leaders who declared that all men are created equal. Of course, while they were denying the rights and the liberty and the dignity and the equality to men and women and others who were not white. And in 1852, Frederick Douglass was invited by his hometown to attend a 4th of July celebration and to address the citizens there. And I'm not sure that the people in Rochester, New York were expecting to hear what he had to say. 
He said this in part, The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. What makes Douglas's words even more indicting is the truth that many of those founding fathers who hypocritically declared righteous parity among men from their lofty, powerful positions also professed to be men of faith who practiced Christianity. If nothing else, it's proof of our nation's long, long history, especially by those in power, of distorting and manipulating the scriptures to support racist, misogynistic, homophobic, classist, and prejudiced rules and laws that we all know are intended to repress certain people instead of relieve them of their struggles. To this day, even today, we have politicians who thrive on using the Bible and Christianity as a weapon. They use it as a sidearm. They assume the role of God's sheriff and they draw it out of their holster and they aim it at anyone that they're scared of or find offensive. And then they assume that because they're offended, God must be offended. And then they threaten God's wrath if they don't get full allegiance and compliance and repentance. Our nation has a long, long history of misplaced righteousness and fake faith. And to the chagrin of some of those who don't want it exposed, a lot of that history is a part of the official record. They'll call it critical race theory or anything else you want. And they can try to silence it in the classrooms and ban it from the libraries and whitewash it in the public conversation and bash it on biased media. They'll do everything they can to keep it from being told. But racism is a big and ugly part of our nation's past. And it clearly still exists in our nation today. Friends, it exists in the halls of power. It even exists in some of our churches. It happened then. It's happening now. And we, here, we're going to talk about it and we're going to fight against it with all the authority we have as citizens and as followers of the Jesus who never, ever, ever condoned but always condemned the exploitation and the mistreatment of the abused and the marginalized. If the words that Paul wrote to those folks in Galatia are true, if it's true that God sees us, all of us as family, as children that belong to the holy, how can it also be true that the children of the holy can be enslaved and abused, belittled and mistreated? How can the God who is holy ever think that is a good thing? It was only two years ago that our nation finally officially recognized Juneteenth as a national holiday. Several states also recognized the importance of the day. Unfortunately, Kentucky's not one of them. Not yet. A governor can commemorate and declare an honorary day, but only the state legislature can create a state holiday. Juneteenth should be a holiday in every state but especially in Kentucky, for at least a couple of historic reasons. Other reasons, too, 
but at least a couple of historic reasons. It was a president who was born here in Kentucky who issued the Emancipation Proclamation that would free all enslaved people in the Confederacy. Juneteenth is a celebration of that freedom, finally reaching the last of the remaining slaves in the South. But that's only partly why we celebrate Juneteenth. President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, but it couldn't be enforced until the Civil War ended in 1865. And there were those slaveholders who kept the news from the people they enslaved. That was the case in Galveston, Texas. Then on June 19, 1865, Union Major General Gordon Granger and his troops arrived and read General Order No. 3, which said, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes between employer and hired labor. The other historic reason that I think Kentucky's legislature should make Juneteenth a state holiday is because that union messenger, Major General Gordon Granger, is buried right here in our city right here in the Lexington Cemetery. Juneteenth should be an official state holiday in Kentucky. As we know, racists will be racists, and they'll do everything they can to make their racism the law of the land. That's why decades after slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment, states and local governments found other ways to oppress people of color. That's why Louisiana made it illegal for black people and white people to sit next to each other on a train. As the case of Plessy versus Ferguson that challenged Louisiana's Separate Car Act was heard in the U.S. Supreme Court, eight white justices, all men, spent weeks listening to arguments for and against legal racism. The goal from the beginning by Homer and the Citizens Committee of New Orleans was to challenge the law's constitutionality and to put an end to that kind of lawful discrimination. They knew if they could just get it this far, they could change things and make things better for every person of color in America. But it didn't happen. When the decision finally came, the U.S. Supreme Court determined that the Louisiana law was not unconstitutional. Legal racism would remain the law of the land. Every justice on the Supreme Court would hold that view. Every justice but one. As a former slaveholder from Kentucky, Justice John Marshall Harlan would have agreed with his colleagues that the Separate Car Act was not about racism. As one who held slaves of his own, he would believe that the Louisiana law was true to the Constitution. Remember, he opposed the Emancipation Proclamation. And after the Civil War ended, 
He opposed civil rights for freed slaves. But then something happened. His perspective changed. As he watched white supremacy grow across America and violence toward people of color increased as they were brutally beaten and lynched and abused, John Marshall Harlan's perspective shifted. He started seeing people of color as people. In the end, Justice Harlan's lone dissenting voice was not enough to put a stop to the injustices of the Separate Car Act. After the court's decision that day, the separate but equal doctrine would rule for decades. It would legitimize all kinds of legal discrimination that forced people of color to walk through separate but equal doors, drink from separate but equal water fountains, eat at separate but equal tables, and watch movies from separate but equal sections, and ride buses in separate but equal seats. But Justice John Marshall Harlan was now on a crusade to try and right the wrongs that he saw happening in our states and in our nation's halls of power. He stayed on the court for over 30 years so he could try and make change. It was six decades later when Plessy v. Ferguson was finally overturned. And even after he'd been gone a long time from the court, many of Justice Harlan's dissenting opinions in the original case were used to make the case against the law. As a matter of fact, many of the great dissenters' words were used to right some of our nation's worst discriminatory wrongs, laws that impacted people of color and the economically disadvantaged. He came to be known as a great man of sympathy. Most folks these days have never heard their names. After the Supreme Court's decision in 1896, Homer Plessy went back to Louisiana and was punished for his crime. No one really heard anything from him again. Justice Harlan was pretty much forgotten too once he left the court and especially after he passed away in 1911. However, years later, when many of his dissenting arguments on the bench were understood as powerful and effective at making the case to overturn discriminatory laws, people started seeing him as the compassionate justice he ended up being. A compassionate justice who was truly ahead of his time. But the argument that always rose to the top, the one that was used so many times as cases against racial discrimination made their way through the courts, was the one that started on a train way down in New Orleans. That would be the case that would change a lot of things for the better for millions and millions of people of color in the U.S. And that was thanks to two mostly forgotten men, Harlan and Plessy. Let's do better. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Bluegrass United Church of Christ podcast. 
We'd love to have you join us for a service sometime. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 500 Don Anna Drive in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find us online at bluegrasschurch.org.